This is the Fatherhood Unlocked podcast, and my name is Dan Doty. I'm a father of three, an outdoorsman, and a meditator, and supporting dads to be the best version of themselves is my highest calling. Fatherhood is the biggest rite of passage in a man's life. It's our biggest opportunity to grow up, to wake up, and to learn who we actually are. I believe that a father's love is the biggest missing vitamin on the planet. This podcast is intended to be a lightning rod to call men to action, to create community, and to set a new tone and standard for what fatherhood means. Welcome to Fatherhood Unlocked. My guest on this episode is Raj Sisodia. And my sense is that if you stick around and listen to this, you may just hear one of the most epic stories that you have ever heard in your life. This episode, I probably spoke fewer words during the course of it than any that I've ever done. And honestly, I liked that. I liked it a lot. The reason that I just, there just wasn't much to say was that Raj simply gave the accounting of his family history from his grandfather in rural India to his son now who's in his 30s here in the United States. And it's a story of literally epic proportions. And if anyone here hears this story and wants to fund a giant HBO or Max uh, miniseries or <laughs> Game of Thrones-esque level show, just reach out because I'm so into it. This story hits all of the notes that you would ever want. It has retribution, it has good guys and bad guys, often within the same character, and it has really just shows the insanely poignant passing down of patriarchal lineage, the possibility of healing one's lineage, and what that actually looks like over several generations. And I know I'm hyping this up, but I'm hyping it up on purpose because uh, honestly, this conversation just like blew me away. Raj is an author. You may have heard of this guy. He's written a ton of books. Uh, one of his biggest ones was called Conscious Capitalism. He wrote with the co-wrote with the CEO of Whole Foods, John Mackey, and the Healing Organization, the Rule of Three, Firms of Endearment. The guy has been just seriously all over the place uh, with his knowledge about the business world, contextualized in a way of consciousness and wholeness and a future forward approach. I'm seriously, seriously grateful to Raj for being on the show. And I am looking forward, first of all, to listening back to this interview, to hearing this story again. And I'm not sure what is going to happen of it, but I just have, have this strong sense of wanting to do something uh, to put this story further into the world. So, so thanks to Raj for being a guest and gracing us with his vulnerable story. Before we get to the story, first, I want to say we have a couple things that are alive right now that I need to talk about. The first is that we're just opening up a new cohort of Fatherhood Ready. Fatherhood Ready is an eight-week deep-dive intensive course for expecting dads and dads who have just had their first child. This is the boot camp. This is the prep. This is the proactive space. First of all, to learn some of the deepest and most important parts of what we need to know becoming a dad. So the program's in two parts. It's half deep dive rite of passage men's group 
work to look inside yourself and to do the wrestling with your own past, your present, and your future so that you can show up in your own skin, in your own heart, in your own mind, and be as present for this ride as you possibly can. And the second is we bring in a series of educators, really fantastic birth and parenting educators to give us the the best education, depth, knowledge that, that we can have as we go into this job. It is becoming a very, very important program to me and to this world. And so here's a call out for if, if you're listening and you're about to be a dad or you just became one, this is for you. And please share this with anyone else in your life that that would fit for. The second thing I'm going to name is the Fatherhood Unlocked Facilitator Training. And this is very directly, I am training men to be facilitators for programs including Fatherhood Ready, including Father's Fire, which is my ongoing men's group for dads, which meets every week and is just deepening and growing and just getting better every single week. The facilitator training is eight weeks long. It starts in the middle of September as well. And what it is, it's going to give you a foundational knowledge to be a leader of men in the capacity of family, in the context of being a dad and family. I am really, really excited. Like It's just this solid clear yes that is happening about fatherhood ready about father's fire about all of this stuff that we're doing and i do we're expanding and i need men to help lead with me and this facilitator training is the door into that uh my importantly on that not going through this training doesn't guarantee you a paid facilitator spot but uh especially early on here there's a good chance that i'll get you in and i'm paying all of my small group facilitators a meaningful meaningful wage and you can you can pay back your uh, investment in the facilitator training in not that long of a time so putting the call out anybody that you don't have to have experience in men's work you don't have to have anything special you just need to be willing you need to be courageous and you need to be uh, able to drop in and do your best and move forward with whatever happens all right let's get to the conversation with Raj Sisodia Raj, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Uh, welcome to Fatherhood Unlocked. Thank you, Dan. Really delighted to be meet you and to be with you. Yeah, so we got connected by an, one of the other guests of the podcast, uh, Ken. And uh, I, I've probably said it five times on the show now, but Ken has now introduced me to 7,000 people. <laughs> it's, it's one of his uh, super... Super skills, but I've I've been uh, I've been especially looking forward to this conversation. And Raj, I think I I mentioned this to you on our first short chat, but I almost immediately upon meeting you and and you know seeing and hearing and reading about what you do in the world and what you've you've done, the many books you've written, uh, I I find myself sort of in a. Uh, a, in a in a seat that sort of I I would just put a if I put a sticker on my chest it'd say mentee <laughs> mentor me mentor me Raj um, and I you know take that with a grain of salt but but in the context of your career and what you've done I'm just really honored to to know you and really honored to have this opportunity to uh, you know get into the the reality of 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 who you are and the healing journey you've been on uh, in the context of, of being a dad. So thank you. And, and let's start, I think you'll do it a thousand times better than I could. Um, you know, give us the, 
a bit of your bio, you know, the, the important things, maybe some of the professional things the people know you for, uh, and then we can shift more into the personal life stuff. Sure. Happy to do that. So uh, I'm mostly known for my work in conscious capitalism, which is a movement that I helped co-found in 2008 uh, with John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods. And that's grown now into a global movement to change the story of business. We have chapters in about 30 or so U.S. cities and about 20 other countries. So there's local communities that are uh, building this, this movement as a counter to the traditional uh, story or business that is only about money and it's all about profit maximization and everything is a means to that end, including people, right? So we view people as just human resources, just like we have financial resources and we have physical resources. And that way of thinking about business has caused a lot of suffering in the world. It has created progress. And you know, in the last 200 years, we've done a lot to elevate our material well-being overall. But at the same time, there have been many costs borne by people, by communities, and by the planet as a result of that single-minded focus on, uh, on profit and shareholder value. And before that, so I've been a business professor now for uh, since 85, so I keep having to do the math. So 38 years, that's kind of <laughs> hard to believe. And for the first 20 of those years, I was frustrated and unhappy and uninspired and a little bit ashamed of my mm. field of work. I was a professor of marketing. And I didn't really believe that marketing has a noble purpose, you know, at least in my mind. I know I know it can if you do it right. Yep. In my mind, speaking of fathers, you know, my father was this larger-than-life figure, brilliant uh, scientist who got a PhD in cytogenetics or plant breeding, oh, uh, wow. gold medal-winning student throughout his academic uh, career. And my inner dialogue was my father got a PhD in cytogenetics. His dream was to cure world hunger. And I got a PhD in marketing and I'm just trying to sell you more junk. <laughs> you know, that's kind of my inner dialogue. It was a kind of a shame associated yeah. with it. I wasn't proud. Certainly I didn't feel like I had a noble sense of purpose around it, but yeah. that led me to uh, search. And so I was always asking, is there a better way to do this mm -hmm. and think about this? Do we have to be spending so much money on ads and coupons and junk mail and it all goes into the trash and nobody cares and, Nobody trusts anything to do with marketing and, you know, and, and yet customers are becoming more cynical and disconnected and disengaged and less trusting and yep. less loyal. Even if you spend more money, you can't buy all that. And so asking that question, which I think is an important question, is there a better way? Mm -hmm. The answer is always yeah. yes. doesn't matter what you're talking about. The answer is yes. <laughs> and you just have to be in that inquiry. And so that led me to 10 years of research uh, on uh, how we can improve uh, you know, efficiency, effectiveness, and ethics in business and in marketing. But ultimately led me to write a book that had multiple titles. One of them was The Shame of Marketing. But that changed, fortunately. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, and then I called it In Search of Marketing Excellence. But ultimately, it was published as a book called Firms of India. Oh, you remember the movie? That Terms was your of first one. Okay. Yeah. But actually, my first in this area. I had written books on strategy and other things before. Okay. The first book that really marked a turning point in my life came out in 2007, but the work started in 2004, asking, is there a better way to be in business where customers love you? And you don't have to spend a lot of money on ads and coupons and junk mail. And I yep. found companies that not only customers, but employees love them, communities embrace them, suppliers were loyal to them. So I discovered a whole different way of being in business. 
right? Got Companies it. are loved by everybody. And what makes that happen? Well, they have a sense of purpose. And what are they trying to do in the world? Uh, they have core values. And then they attract people, you know, with shared purpose and values around this, whether you're a customer or an employee or an investor. So you got purpose, you got the stakeholder mindset, and you got leaders who care about people and purpose. They're not all about just power and money and mm-hmm. ego. And then, you know, cultures where people love to come to work. You know, there's trust and there's caring and there's fun and there's authenticity and vulnerability. Was so it a challenge people, to find? Was it a challenge to find examples or did were they pretty easy to, to get your hands not on? Hard. You know, we just asked people, tell us about companies you love. Sure. That, sure. And we got a list of 400. And then we started to look at these companies uh, and also we asked what companies you hate. And some of the same companies were on both lists. <laughs> but then we started to evaluate those companies and look at, are they doing anything for any of their stakeholders, employees mm-hmm. or customers or the planet or something? that would uh, disqualify for them from being mm-hmm. a firm of right? So we ultimately got down to 60, and then we did detailed analysis on those 60 and selected 28 of them. Mm. So it was, a, it was kind of a representative sample, you know, it wasn't the ultimate yeah. such companies, but, yeah. uh, and then we did the financial analysis at the end, and we found that these companies actually were more successful financially while they were creating well-being employees or the families yeah. of yeah. so it turned yeah. out to be not a trade-off between saying well you can be nice or you can be successful which is what most people would have expected right yeah. that these companies are not trying to maximize profit and yet they're generating nine times the returns <laughs> of the average company you know the S&P 500 so it was a pretty dramatic story at that point and uh, that led me to meet uh, CEO of Whole Foods John Mackey one of the companies I had written about was Whole Foods yep and when I shared my mind map of what I was calling the Institute for New Capitalism with him, mm-hmm. so I see I have a fetish for making up acronyms. Um, and I showed him the vision, my vision for Inc. And he said, well, that's my uh, vision as well, but I like the phrase conscious capitalism. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's how we, I'd never heard that phrase before. And so that's how we decided, okay, let's try to launch a movement around this. Amazing. So that's what's wrong. And so then my work continued in that uh, in that uh, vein. Mm-hmm. I wrote the book uh, Conscious Capitalism with John in 2018. And then I wrote a book about the feminine called Shakti Leadership. Uh, because what I recognized and saw in the world, and especially in conscious companies, is more feminine energy. Yeah. There's healthy masculine, which I'm sure you're all about. Yeah. But in the absence of the feminine, you know, if the masculine is unrestrained or unimpacted uh, by the feminine, uh, then it becomes excessive, right? It becomes uh, immature. Yep. And you end up with domination, aggression, hyper-competition, winning at all costs. Everything becomes a war. Yep. That's kind of yep. the human history, right? If you look at it, 100%. women were shut out of politics, women were shut out of business. And so we ended up with this, you know, some progress, but also incredible suffering in the world. Yeah, so that you know the hyper masculine energy run amok in a way, and so this book Shakti Leadership recognizes that first of all, we are seeing the rise of feminine values, and we need to. These values have been sidelined in men and women. All of us have them. Yep. Right? Carl Jung said, "Every man has an inner woman. Every woman has an inner man." And we have suppressed women, and we have suppressed feminine energy. When little boys are told, you know, be a man, don't cry, etc. Don't show any emotion other than anger. 
uh, we kind of have created this unnatural dynamic in the world. And, and as I said, that has led to a lot of suffering and all the problems I think we face in the world. Many of them are because of that. You know, we're destroying our planet, we're destroying communities, we're hurting our own employees, etc. You don't do that if you're connected to your heart. See, business is all about the head and the wallet, yeah. right? Yeah. That's masculine energy. But what about the heart and soul? What about meaning and purpose? And what about love, right? Those were missing. And that's what we've been really bringing in. And, and one of the interesting insights that I received from a coach in 2018 when I turned 60 and I was writing a book called The Healing Organization. She said to me, do you realize that you spent 45 years trying to impress your father? Mm-hmm. And now you spent the last 15 years honoring your mother with your work. Wow. Everything, conscious capitalism, firms of endearment, book called Everybody Matters, Healing Organization, that all of these are bringing that, that energy, yeah. which mother represented in a very pure way. Yeah. That kind of really put a clarity on my journey to say, yeah, I'm more like my mother and I'm kind of bringing her energy, yeah. which is missing peace in a, in a way. Most of business oh, man. So that's well, kind of been a... the journey of these last 15 years. So. Yeah. Thank, thank you for laying that out. I, uh, you know, I feel incredibly aligned with, with the, the narrative you're sharing. And I think it's, it's cool to see your, I don't know. It's cool to see the the progression of your work and, uh, you know, that naming and acknowledging and honoring and sort of making room for the, the feminine principle, the feminine energy, you know, a big part of what this podcast, what I'm inquiring into and what I'm exploring here is, is the reality that that's true now in our families and in our uh, environments of raising our children. And, um, my listeners are going to be very tired of me saying this, but the, you know, on the human scale of time, you know, this, this last, I don't know, 10, 20, 40, 60 years, there's a, there's a, a real ramping of, of, of the feminine energy, um, you know, and, and in this specifically in the, in the parenting realm, it's hard to see in history where uh, an, an analog to this, right? Especially in Western culture, right? I'm, I'm blind to a lot of uh, global cultures, so I'm saying this from a pretty ignorant place. But um, the the skills of being a nurturing individual, uh, a connected, a listening, a feeling, a receptive individual, dads are um, sort of being thrust into that place, and it's. You know, it's, it's a bit of the wild west, right? There's a lot of skill sets. There's a lot of ways of being with those energies and being with that way of being that, you know, I think we're just, we're just kind of getting into it, but, but I, I'll leave a pin on this for later in our conversation, but, you know, I think there is, there's a analogous process happening in, in the business world and in our family structures. And I'm, you know, I'm attuned to all of it. I'm, I'm excited about all of it. So we'll come back and maybe weave together. How, how that's all going, but I would love to, I would love to hear more about um, your narrative as a dad, right? And maybe, maybe you want to start that when you became father, maybe you want to start that hundreds of years before you can, you can have the uh, empowerment to start where you want, but I'd love to hear about that journey. Interrupting this interview 
to talk a little bit more about Father's Fire. Father's Fire is an ongoing men's group, digital men's group. We meet weekly. Right now we meet on Thursday nights. And it is a one-stop shop for dads to have community, make friends, do deep inner work, have support and accountability in being intentional with your family, with your job, with everything you need to do to serve your little ones, to serve your family, to serve yourself, to stay healthy, to stay happy. All of the things this job we're doing, this dad job is wildly large. And when we come together, it gets more fun. We learn from each other, we get inspired by each other. And it just seems like it doesn't take too long and all of a sudden people are racking up wins and learning a lot and deepening their relationships. It's just a, it's a, just a source of goodness. And if you're interested, go to dandody.com and check out Father's Fire. Sure, yeah. So I've been reflecting a lot on that because my book, Awaken, which is my memoir, uh, The Path to Purpose, Inner Peace and Healing. If I look at it, step back and look at it, it really is a story about fathers and sons. Hmm. And uh, that's kind of been a dominant narrative in my life. Uh, first of all, because I didn't know my father until I was seven. Uh, we were living in a village in India. <clears throat> we came from this very feudal background. My grandfather was kind of the overlord, the village, the largest landowner, and a, a fort-like house on the top of a hill, and hundreds of people working, and everybody had a title, you know, my cousins and uncles and my grandfather and so forth. And in that environment, first of all, education wasn't valued. Mm-hmm. To my grandfather, if you, if you run out of read and write, that's enough. That could mean fourth grade, that could mean eighth grade at best. You know, the, the school in the village only went up to the eighth grade. So if it was up to my grandfather, kids would have been pulled out after fourth grade. You have all this land and this is your life. Yeah. My father was very, very intelligent and very ambitious. So he insisted on not only finishing eighth, but then going to another town to finish his high school and living there. And then wanted to go to college and uh, dreamed of becoming a doctor. And my grandfather, very harsh patriarch, was like, not, nothing doing, you know, you need to come back here and work on the farm. Finally, he, he gave in on one condition that, yeah, you can't be a doctor. You, if you want to study anything, you must study agriculture. But at <laughs> least you'll be of some use to us over here, right? <laughs> so my father gave up his dream. And this is an important thing to, again, put a pin in it, right? <clears throat> he gave in. <laughs> but uh, so what that meant was, man, he got married when he was still an undergraduate student. So we're still in college. And so my mother came to the village. You know, there's a big joint family, all the sons, their wives, everybody lives in this big house. But meanwhile, my father is away. So I'm born. I don't know him. And then he finishes his undergrad. Then he gets, uh, decides to go get a master's degree in Delhi in agriculture. And again, another fight with my father. And then ultimately he went with my grandfather. Uh, and so then he was in Delhi for two years. And then uh, his professors, he got a gold medal at each of those places, like the number one student in the entire world. Wow. And so his professor said, no, you, you have to do a PhD. I mean, this is like, you know, is your scientific, you know, brilliant yeah. scientific mind here. And India was in the middle of uh, beginning the early stages of what was called the Green Revolution in agriculture, becoming yeah. self-sufficient in food. India used to import food and people used to die of starvation and so forth. And they were trying to create you know, this revolution in agriculture. So he was very much a part of that. So he went away to Canada for four, four and a half years, mm. five years. So, so again, my first memory of him is when he came back from Canada. When I was about seven, almost seven. Okay. And it was an enormous 
you know, homecoming for him. Yeah, it was literally because this this kid from a village had gone across the seven seas and you know to mythical places, which people had never you know imagined. Yeah. He came back yeah. and literally there was a parade that my was organized, literally like for fifty miles. You know, wow, seriously, from the train station to our village is fifty miles. And so there was a parade of cars, and then every village along the way, there were like big banners and signs, welcome Dr. Sisodia. playing music, and the head of those villages would come and welcome him and put garlands around his neck. And, you know, it was like conquering hero has come back. Wow. And I'm like a little, you know, rough looking kid on the edges of these these photos, you know. Uh, He was like this dashing Looked like John F. Kennedy or something with his ear. Do you remember what it felt like? Do you remember what that what that experience felt yeah, like? It was kind of awe-inspiring. I was he didn't seem yeah. like a real person. You know, I remember he was wearing a blue knit, you know, polo uh, shirt and Ray-Ban sunglasses. Yeah. Right. And this was all very Western. I mean, this looked like somebody out of a movie, right? To us. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and of course he had no time for me. And I don't remember him even greeting me or picking me up or anything. I don't remember. Yeah. I was always so I'm kind of in awe this, this, this person, you know. And then, um, so yeah, that was the the return, the return of the native. And my grandfather organized this big welcome because he thought, okay, finally he's back. Yeah. All this. And after about two three months, my father told my his father that I'm I'm leaving. I got mm. a job in Barbados. Okay. <laughs> so again, my grandfather got mad. You know and refused to speak to him. That was the pattern. Every time he did something like that, and if he defied my grandfather, my grandfather would say, you're dead to me, I don't want anything to do with you, and they would stop him. Okay, that two years, two or three years later, gaming would start. Yeah. So suddenly we move uh, to Barbados. You know, so again, you can imagine seven-year-old kid having lived in a little village without electricity or running water, and now suddenly you're standing in London and watching the changing of the guard. Wow. <laughs> Buckingham Palace and being in an airplane for the first time and throwing up and you know it was incredibly uh, exciting yeah we knew right to be taken out of one reality and, and implanted in another and it was a changing of the guard that's one of the chapters in my book my mother had been in charge of me you mm. know until then almost like a single mom and now my father entered the picture and he's a very domineering energy you know he's got a very very strong personality so but what, what quickly became evident, and I, you know, I never became comfortable with him, mm. because imagine missing, now your kids are one, four, and seven, you said? Yeah, exactly. Yep. I imagine not knowing any of them until they're seven. Yeah. Okay. So what kind of a hole that would leave and how hard that is to fill. Yeah. Uh, and some people can fill it, but my father had a shell around him, and he was never demonstrative or affectionate. I never remember being picked yeah. up around him. You know, and so did uh, you have brothers and sisters? Were you the? Yeah, so I had a sister who was born while he, so my mother was pregnant when he left for Canada. Okay. And when he came back, he's got a four-year-old daughter he's never seen. You know, just hmm. <laughs> this is what people did in the old days. You know, I think uh, whatever it took, especially in India. And so I never really bridged that gap with him. I never got comfortable with him. I just felt awkward and inadequate and you know, unworthy of him. And, you know, he also, when he saw what kind of a kid I was, and I was a very good kid in the sense of very well-behaved and never gave any trouble and, you know. Yeah. Uh, but also very, very peace-loving and I never got into a fight with anybody. 
Yeah. And I'm 65 now. I still have not had my first fight with my brother or sister. <laughs> <laughs> my, my kids tell me, Dad, you're just weird. Okay, that's all it is. <laughs> that's not natural. I, I'm starting to see that. But uh, I was very trusting and he would say, you can't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And he put me and my mother in the same bucket. You're like your mother. You two people mm-hmm. will eat you alive. Okay? The mm-hmm. world is going to eat you alive. That's a message I heard a lot. You know, because you're like this helpless uh, little lamb and the, the wolves out there are going to just devour people. Like you. Yeah. So shouldn't trust anybody. I was very idealistic. Even as a, as a young kid, you know, and you would say, you can't be, you need to be pragmatic. You know, I was very peace loving, as I said, very harmony. And he said, no, you need to be rough and tough. Yeah. And I was very intellectual and in my head, very good at school. And I said, that doesn't matter. You need to be street smart. Yeah. And so everything that defined me or came naturally to me were my innate qualities. In a way. He framed them as weaknesses I needed to overcome if I was even going to survive out there. You know? And so I, that just kind of implanted in me. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, can, I, of- can I ask a question there? I'm, I'm curious if that sort of street, smart, rough and tumble, is there similarities between you know, Western versions, masculine versions of that, and, uh, you know, the village in India you grow up. Is there any differences, I guess, culturally between the, you know, my boy should be this tough blank, yeah. blank, blank. I'm curious what you think. Well, I think, you know, I think the U.S. to me also is a very masculine culture. Yeah. Compared to many other countries. In the world. There, there have been research studies that have shown that, and India also is a very patriarchal system. And, and I'm, I come from the warrior caste. India has these four major uh, castes. Yep. Priests, the Brahmins, and then, the, and then the warriors, and then the, the traders and the business people, and then the menial workers and the untouchables, as they're often called. Right. So in that culture, yeah, very much it's prized, right, to be that, right? So my yeah. uncles, not all of them, there's exceptions. My grandfather, I mean, he was tough as nails. And that's all they respected. Mm-hmm. Right. This is what the, the, the creed is, especially coming from that warrior. Got it. Mentality. It's really about being that rough, tough you know, person. And so, um, so yeah, so that the message to me was that I am inadequate and I'm defective. Yep. That I need to be the opposite of who I am mm-hmm. to earn his respect, but also to survive in the world. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, and I have this framing of these seven steps, you know, know yourself, love yourself, be yourself, et cetera, that I now talk about. But if, if I look at my own experience with that, to the extent that I knew myself and I started to know myself through his eyes, right? Yeah. I never thought about who I am. I'm just me. But when he started seeing these things in me and not knowledge, accepting them or telling me to be the opposite. So to the extent that I knew myself, I hated myself. My self-talk was always, why am I like this? You know, I just hate it. I hate my inner being. So, you know, my partner has this nice phrase that be careful what you say to your kids because your outer voice to them becomes their inner voice yeah. the rest of your life. Yeah. Right? And so that was my inner voice, constantly castigating myself, you know, and, uh, yeah. and trying to be the opposite. So that, that makes for a way unhappy, uh, you know, and unfulfilling and... You know, you can't be impactful or happy if you're trying to be the opposite of who you are. You know? So that was a big learning. So we spent these five years outside of India. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, I had that issue with my father, but I was also a compliant kid and I did well in school. So I didn't really have, you know, we didn't have clashes. I was having go through a rebellious phase as a teenager and so forth, you know, so we, yep. never had, yep. we didn't have those uh, situations, which those are healthy things, which I didn't have. Hmm. And I've come recently to recognize there's something I read recently called the dangers of the good child. Mm. The good child who's compliant, who does everything they're supposed to and never makes a mess and never makes a ruckus and everybody praises them. But this good child is actually abandoning himself. 100%. So it's like the choice between attachment and belonging, uh, attachment and uh, authenticity. Yeah. Right? So in order to be belong, to be accepted, you give up your authenticity. You're not willing to express your emotions. You're not certainly willing to show anger. And that doesn't disappear. It, it stays in your body. Mm-hmm. And it started showing up for me as chronic pain. You know, it six, did. Eight, oh, yeah. Six, eight months ago, I started going through these episodes of really bad back pain. And that started radiating into my legs and everywhere else. Um, and no number of massages or injections or painkillers or nothing helped. Huh. I was getting desperate until somebody told me you should journal about your emotions yeah. and what unexpressed or repressed anger that you might have. That you never, yeah. Yeah. And that those are the things. There's a very interesting book called Healing Back Pain, The Mind-Body Connection by John Sarno. Yeah. And he talks about this thing that he recognized called TMS, tension my neural syndrome, that when you're not willing to deal with emotional issues because they're mm-hmm. too painful, that your mind creates physical pain in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'll send signals to your back or your legs or whatever, deprive oxygen so that you are distracted by that and you don't have to deal with the, the deeper wound or the deeper pain. Now, it all sounds very... <laughs> but, but in fact, when I picked up that book and read it, he said 80 to 90% of people who read this book, the pain goes away. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. what's happening, you know? Yeah. Exactly that happened for me after, as I said, 26 massages and you know, muscle relaxant injections and strong painkillers, I suddenly, the pain released me because I saw what was really going on, you know? And so it's, and they say, think psychological, not physical. So that's, I think, the dangers of the good child that I've learned this lesson. And I've been giving that book out and several people have, somebody said Mm -hmm. they have migraines. I said, try this. Migraines have stopped. Somebody I just met in Columbus last week, he was talking about back pain. I told him about this. He just wrote to me yesterday saying, the back pain is gone, you know, it's kind of miraculous. And, uh, you know, yeah. But so this is an example of, I mean, what, what I hear or what the story I could make up here is that, you know, people talk about a father wound. Uh, that's a phrase that's, that's used quite, quite a bit in certain circles. Right. And, uh, but, but we could possibly make a, a story here that, I mean, you're basically outlining some of the results and some of the pain and impact of a very specific and and seemingly pretty substantial father wound. Does that land? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I haven't even told you the the more intense parts of that, but little incidents then that, that kind of uh, support the story you're building in your mind. Mm -hmm. They start. So for example, we were living in Barbados and I'm eight years old and my father had asthma and so one day he got an attack and he had this inhaler that he would use, right? Mm-hmm. Asthma inhaler. And we were in our big living room and he was at one end and he got a asthmatic attack and I was at the other end of the room playing or doing something and his inhaler was lying on a table next to where I was standing. So he's gesturing to me 
to bring over that, you know, he's doing like this. Mm-hmm. And I didn't understand. So I'm just picking that up and shaking it and pretending to inhale it myself. And, you know, I didn't uh-huh. know what he did. He got desperate. So he picked up his shoe and threw it at me. Uh-huh. And it hit me in the head. And I'm looking over there and suddenly a shoe hits me over here. And I'm like, and so my inner dialogue was, oh, he hates me. Uh-huh. Not only does he not respect me or love me, he hates me. You know, and I carried that story in my head for 55 years. Holy shit. Jesus. And, or maybe even yeah. more. I, I finally asked him about it. And of course, he didn't even remember. It's a non-incident yeah. for him. And then my, my final realization on that was desperate people do desperate things. Mm. He was desperate. He couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. And the only way he couldn't walk across because of this. So that's, you know, but, but again, I, I agree with you. We create stories and then we look for support and evidence. So my story was, and I think a lot of it was true. He did mock me many, mm-hmm. many ways. Uh, when we came back to India after five years and we were in the village and I don't know, I must have spoken to somebody and told them to do something or whatever, you know, maybe I uncharacteristically was, was kind of rude to somebody. I don't know what it was exactly, but I was 12 years old. And he says to somebody and I could hear him, he said, even a cat becomes a tiger you know, in its own in its own." Mm. A pussycat becomes a tiger. Yeah. You know? In Hindi, he said that. And I heard, he didn't know I heard that. But it's these kinds of things. So, yeah, so there's this father wound in me that's percolating. But then, like I said, I, I did well in school. And before I was 16, I left home. Mm. I, I got into engineering school. And um, then I got into business school. And then I got into a PhD program and came to the US. So I, I pretty much left home before I was 16, you know? Yeah. And only been back for vacations and so forth, periodically. And so we didn't have, we did have some incidents between us that were, you know, bringing up this divide, you know, that not only this, uh, you know, different personalities, but also different worldviews. Like yeah. I being an idealistic person, and I was able to hold on to some of that. So we have this tradition of dowry in India. Mm-hmm. So when a girl gets married, her parents are supposed to give all this stuff right? As much as they can afford and the boy's family and these are arranged marriages. So they will demand more and more. And often they will be shopping around to say, who's going to give us the most, right? They'll, they'll arrange the marriage where they're going to get a car and they're going to get an air conditioner and they're going to get so much money and they're going to get this much jewelry. And I mean, it literally is like that. I know of one uncle who was supposed to get married to a girl in one village and the bus is full of people and they're going there for the wedding. But they can they they get a message along the way, right? That this other family is offering more in another way. Outbid them? Oh my gosh! I so was not aware of be, that dynamic. They, wow! They turned the bus and went there, and got married over there. And meanwhile, this girl is sitting on the wedding thing, you know, waiting to get married, and her life kind of gets ruined because oh my god, she was left at the altar, kind of thing. And so stuff like that happened, right? So now, when it came time for my sister to get married. My father started putting the word out. First of all, you know, they were living in Africa at the time. My sister had finished her undergrad and she was teaching in a school in, uh, in Zambia, in Zimbabwe. And in, in, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Lusaka, Zambia. And my father told people in India, don't tell people that Manju is teaching. Mm. Oh, that will make her less desirable as a, you know, as a marriage prospect, which I said, what nonsense is this? Okay, so fine. And then... Then he starts telling people in India, okay, look for a suitable boy, they call it, right, for my daughter. 
And I'm willing to pay a lot. Okay. I'm going to give a lot of dowry because he was working in Africa by that time and he was earning in dollars and, you know, all of that was supposed to be. And I got really upset. I said, why are you selling people that you're going to give dowry? It's a horrible system. There are women who get burned alive because they didn't bring enough dowry. And, you know, this is one of the worst things about India, the caste system and the dowry system. And what kind of a person will we get? You know, what kind of character will that person have if they're going to pick our, my, my sister right. because you're getting more money? And he's, oh, shut up and go to hell. You don't understand anything. And you have to be part of the culture and the system you're part of. And, you know, it was really deeply, deeply troubling to me that here's this uh, educated man who's lived all over the world. Yeah. And yet in this instance. So... Of course, yeah. So I protested, but it didn't matter. But then, then when the thing did happen, and this, she ended up, the, you know, marrying somebody who was in my class in high school. We were in the same school in the same class, and everybody knew him and I loved him. And a wonderful guy, wonderful family. And then this this thing got arranged, and we went to their house to finalize you know, the uh, engagement. You know? yep. And their horoscopes finally matched, and all those things are after. And then my father goes up to her, uh, to uh, his father, you know, the boy's father, right, with his hands folded in a very respectful kind of way and said, how much, how much can I offer? You know? Yeah. And I see his father blow up at my father. What the hell do you mean? You think I'm going to take money for your daughter? Man? She's going to become my, our daughter. And if you want to give her anything, you give her whatever you want. But don't, don't yeah. insult me with that kind of talk. And I'm just standing there thinking, oh, <laughs> I know she's going to be happy here because yeah. these are not the kind of people that we could have gotten. You know? So, but so I had minor clashes like that with him, but again, yeah. not existential, right? But then, when when it came time, you know, for me to marry, and they were starting to look for girls, you know, yeah, arrange marriage circuit, and and I didn't say no. I didn't say absolutely not. I say yeah, I might meet somebody amazing that way. So I'm not going to agree to anything unless I meet the person's mentor. So I met a yeah. few like. You know, it didn't really. I wanted somebody very modern and professional. Mm-hmm. And most of those girls are not. You know, they're very much mm-hmm. traditional. And I also had in my mind that if I, if I meet somebody, I'm living in New York and then in Boston. If I meet somebody here, yep. it's my life. You know, I'll decide one way or the other. Yep. So I did meet somebody. And it's a very long story, but I'll just tell you in very brief. So I met somebody. She's of Indian heritage, but not. She's from Nepal. She's mm-hmm. not from the past, right? So culturally, she's not the same. You right, know, career cost, etc. That didn't matter to me. I didn't believe in that stuff. She was educated, professional, etc. And so I called him. And he's in Africa, and I said, uh, "Papa, I met somebody, and I think this might be somebody that." I wasn't saying I've I've already decided. I said, just said I met somebody. Right. Immediately yeah. said, "You must choose between her or us." Jeez, okay? you choose her, you get to us. Not only to him. My cousins, my uncles, my siblings. I was like the whole. You're gonna, you're writing off your entire family if you do this. You're gonna bury us alive. You're gonna do this and that. You know you can't do this. Yeah. By the way, it was eight in the morning when I called in yeah. Africa. He he poured himself a stiff scotch as soon as I said that. That was his coping mechanism. You know that's every single day. You know, and yeah. so that's and then it unraveled from there. You know, and then I I didn't give in. Then they came to Boston, and spent several months trying to dissuade me and I didn't listen. And he would pick up the phone when I talked to her and say, if you marry my son, I curse you and I curse your marriage. You know? Wow. 
then then finally met her and said, go back to your people. You don't belong with us, etc." And then I didn't give in to any of that. And finally, one night, he, he had a few drinks every night. And then he goes to the kitchen and he takes a knife out of the butcher block. And he said, if you marry this girl, I'm going to kill myself. Jeez. And he takes the knife and he cuts himself. Okay. Not a deep wound, but enough to have a pool of blood on his white kurta and then drops of blood on the linoleum. And I rushed over as soon as I saw him grab the knife. By the time I got there, there's blood. And I just collapsed and everything went black and fell to the floor, sobbing. Oh. It was deeply traumatic to see that. Of know? course. And I said, okay, fine, I give in. Fine, I won't marry you. Because I don't oh, know what else. Cow. I had reached the end of my, you know, yeah. after months, months of pressure. And so he was immediately fine. Oh, it's okay. You know, everybody makes mistakes. It's fine. Then next morning, he's looking at the real estate section and the newspaper saying, why are you paying all this rent? We should buy a condo for you. <laughs> oh, my God. This is what we do. You know, it's like you know, using money as a weapon. Yeah. My money was weaponized in my family. His father did it. I, he did it. It's like, you know, if you're the good son, then I'm going to do all this for you. And if you're the bad son, you're cut off. Right? You're dead to me. So he's trying yeah, to bribe I'm you real estate. <laughs> That is so wild. I, I want to, let's try this on for a second. There's an exercise I love doing with people, which is I would, and as an author, you might enjoy this. So I'd be curious if there was a parenting book written uh, descriptively about your grandfather, his parenting book, how he parented, I'm curious of the name and then a parenting book from your father's point of view. I'm curious what the name of that book would be. And then we can get to, I mean, you've written a lot of books, so you, maybe you have yours already. But if you could sum up first your grandfather's POV on, on parenting, what's the phrase? What's the book title? My grandfather was all about honor and uh, prestige, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Honor the family, I suppose, would be his. Honor the you know, family. And it's the honor of the family, not just honoring the family, because yeah. I'll get to the, the second trauma, you know. Uh, yeah. But the huge trauma that happened, my grandfather's, my father's siblings, actually, that was life changing. Uh, but his would be all about that. My father's. You know, it depends when he wrote it. By the end of his life, you know, he realized, you know, what he did wasn't didn't work. It had the counter. It had the negative. It had the opposite effect. Yeah. See, I imagine if I made that call to Africa and he said, "Are you sure? How, how long have you known her? We should meet her. You know, we just want you to be happy. Make sure it's the right thing for you." you know? <laughs> yeah. Then I would have been. Yeah, we would have been on the same side. Right. But in that, but in that moment, but in that moment, it sounds like what, what he, I mean, his reaction was protecting the system as it was at all costs. Is is sort of what I read yeah. there. Even if he wanted that outcome, the way to yeah. achieve that yeah. is not by going like this, because then you create an equal and opposite force. Yeah. Right? And yeah. he may have underestimated me. He probably thought that I was the kind of person who he could just suppress. The thing is, there's a there was a core of you know, strengthen me that I didn't even realize. Yeah. So, no, I didn't cave. So just to finish that part, so I don't know what the story of his book would be, you know. Well, I just have to, I have to say this too before I lose it. I mean, talking about the phrase father wound, like the image of him literally piercing his skin 
is really, I mean, wow, you know, how poignant and sharp of an image is that? So it gets worse because I give in in the moment and then they leave in a few days and I slowly come back to my senses. And as my one thought is, I cannot let this man dictate my life. Yeah. Such a domineering figure anyway, that if I give in on this issue that I will never be a free person and I'll never respect myself, it became a matter of self-respect. And I thought to myself, it's my life, even if it's a mistake, it's my life. I get yeah. it So I, I told my, I had already proposed to her by then. And I told her, you know, I told her I can't marry you. And then I said to her, if you want to, I will still, I will still honor what I said before, I will marry you. And she said, yes. And then I went to India. By this time, my parents had moved back to India. Right? I went to his house. And I said to him, Papa, I've changed my mind. It's my life and it's my decision. And of course, he blew up all over again and bloody hell and said, right? And this time he went into the bedroom and he came back with a rifle. So we have a lot of guns. You know, we come from this culture of, we, we literally worship our weapons, you know, the warrior class. He came back with a gun and he pointed the gun at me. And he said something along the lines of, I would rather not have a son than have a son like you. Jesus. And my cousins and uncles were there and they came between us. And they separated I and mean, took me away from there, out of the house very quickly. <clears throat> and we went to my sister's house. The weird thing, Dan, is that this memory was so traumatic that my, my mind literally erased it. Mm. Okay. So you have disassociative amnesia. Yeah. Yeah. I have no conscious memory of that incident. And then four years ago, I was on a walk with my cousin in India and I asked him about that period of time and all this happened and what his memories were. He said, yeah, this is what happened. This is what he said. This is, he told me the specific gun that he had brought out and who else was there. And he said, yeah, I remember it as clear as it was yesterday. And I said, wow, I had no memory because it's too painful, you know, when your yeah. father threatens yeah. something like that, you know. And so that was the second piece of it and the deeper piece of it, I think. That's, okay, I don't have a conscious memory, but, you know, as yeah. they say, the body, body keeps the score, right? Yeah. It's in there. Yeah. And so then the next five years were, you know, I came back and I got married. And he calls me the night before and he said, I want you to postpone the wedding. I was getting married here in Boston and with no family, I was alone. Yeah. Right? And I almost felt like I was preparing for a funeral, you know, just yeah. felt like completely cut off. This was not me. I was very close to everybody in my family. He said, I wanted to postpone. I said, does that mean that you're agreeing to this? Because I, it's killing me to get married all alone. I will, everybody's here and the arrangements are made, but I will. Because it's killing me. I want to do this properly. I want to be with my family in India doing this the proper way. Weddings are a big deal in India. He said, I'll think about it. Hmm. I said, that's not enough yeah. He's again tried to manipulate me and jerk me around. So I went ahead and like I said, it felt like a very grim, you know, like a very sad yeah. day. Thanks, you know. Anyway, that started five years of estrangement, bitter letters once in a while, but okay, my son is born and he never acknowledges my son. Everybody said, Oh, Indian parents do this, but when a child is born, that's when they come around. Nothing. And our son ends up having special needs. Hmm. Wife says, That's your father's curse. I said, I, I refuse to, I don't want to go there. You know, I don't believe it. Yeah. 
So that was the deep father wound. And, you know, it took me down about 35, 40 years. Yeah. Actually, I would say 30 plus years to ultimately heal from it. I went from anger and bitterness yeah. towards him for those five years. And then I read this book Tuesdays with Maury. And he said, if I could live again, I would forgive everybody for everything. I said, okay, fine. I forgive him. <laughs> but then I went to this Art of Living course. And they said, you should accept. People are who they are and they do what they do. For a thousand reasons, yeah. you will never understand. Just accept them. Mm-hmm. So I said, is that the same as forgiving them? He said, no, forgiving means you're right and they're wrong. Acceptance simply means I don't understand what I'm I tried to try to accept, yep. you know, he did what he did. And then ultimately I went to uh, understanding, you know, and then uh, some degree of empathy, and finally compassion near the end of his life. Because I started to realize that understanding, you know, he was trying to elevate the family status through me. Because yep. I was highly educated and all of that unusual in our community, and they were getting proposals from these daughters of royal families and all of that kind of stuff, you know, because there's still a very, you know, hierarchical system in India. And you have all these former royalty who still, you know, act like they are royalty. And so this would have been a way for them to elevate their social standing. Got it. So, okay, I can see why he was so hung up on that. And then I started to get empathy because his father was even tougher on him. Like, you know, he made him, he wanted to be a doctor. He changed his career. Yep. He yep. apparently fell in love with a girl in college, or he liked a girl. I don't know. He fell in love, and when my grandfather found out, he immediately arranged my father's marriage to my mother. Mm. Without any question, my father even never. The only he saw like a half inch by half inch photograph. That's all he saw wow. of my mother. She never even saw a picture of you. And he gave in on that, right? So he didn't put up a video. Yeah. And then my father had this brilliant scientific career going out here in the West, and my grandfather's. You, you have a duty to your siblings and your family and, you know, you can't abandon everybody and just live your life over there. And so he gave up everything and came back to India. Yeah. And he gave yeah. up his scientific career. He, his professors thought he would win a Nobel Prize. He was that no brilliant. Kidding. Wow. And he goes back and suddenly he's in this mediocre state agriculture university filled with politics and no resources. And yeah, so he kind of sacrificed his career yeah. and everything for the so-called good of the family because of his father's pressure yeah. on him. And, and in a way, it, it was a tragic story of, uh, for life. Yeah. Lived, you know, uh, without being true to yourself and unrealized potential. Yeah. What could have been and what he ended up. He became a bitter and deeply unhappy human for the rest of his life. You know? So I came to that place ultimately of compassion. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So that was kind of the journey of, of healing. He never apologized for what had happened. And for a while, I was hung up on that. I said, he needs to apologize for what he did. Yeah. Brother-in-law said, Raj, you've become too American. An Indian father is never going to apologize to his son. <laughs> that wasn't impossible. Yeah. So the first time when I went back to India after five years, I told him, you need to apologize. He blew up and I said, go to hell. Yeah. I said, okay, I'm going to a hotel. I'm not going to stay in this house with my wife and son. And then the next morning, as I was about to leave and having tea, he started crying. Mm. I did what I did because I thought it was my duty or whatever. He said some words, but the words didn't matter. When I saw his tears, yeah. I started crying and all was forgiven in that instant. Because wow. I was so, you know, my, my harmony-loving nature was so torn up over all this conflict. 
I just wanted to be okay. So I think that's a lesson because I, in that moment, was willing to accept what was not an apology, mm-hmm. but I was so desperate for reconciliation, you know? So we didn't fully, he didn't acknowledge the truth. You know, that's the truth and reconciliation, right? The truth has to be acknowledged mm-hmm. before you can have it. And so it wasn't a real peace. That wound was still there and took many years. So that's kind of my father wound story. And I realized that he had a father wound that some ways may have been deeper than yep. his father. Yep. Then yep. one day I suddenly said, oh my God, my son has a father wound. Because, you know, being special needs, his condition first became, started to know something was going on when he was about three, and then it became worse and worse and worse and until by the time he was a teenager, he had to be frequently hospitalized and you know, restrained and you know, your back molar mm-hmm. and outbursts and he had pervasive developmental disorder. And, and it was very hard, very traumatic at times, calling 911 and having him physically strained and having, oh, him, having to admit him in these psychiatric hospitals. Once we were in Italy and we literally had to trick him, you know, into getting into a car so that we could admit him because he was, you know, so very difficult, right? And as a firstborn child and you have these hopes and dreams about what your children are going to be like, you know, then other people's kids are going to college and they're, you know, getting jobs and getting, you know, and all of that. So none of that is in our future, right? Yeah. So there's a deep grieving and a, you know, a disappointment. And as I said, it was difficult. So I, I just saw him as this responsibility of the heavy weight. Yeah. It felt like a heavy weight of a burden that is once added provide financially for him for the rest of his life. And we have to deal with all of these, you know, outbursts and, you know, and uncertainties. So that was kind of my default mode with him. Yeah. And I spent the least amount of time and, you know, he's in a group home. So, okay, well, how quickly can we get him back there? And, you know, it's like out of sight, out of mind, you know. And then I looked one day and I said, oh my God, my father never accepted me yeah. because I was so different from him. And I never accepted my son because he's so different from me, you know, and I never have seen him. And my partner, Neha, actually was helpful in that. But she saw him as the human, you know, not as a... His doctor once said he sees himself as, as defective, mm. you know, as defective goods. And we reinforce that. And so I've started to now recognize his beauty and his... His qualities and one other piece which I haven't laid the groundwork for, but one of the things that came to me uh, five years ago when I was learning about healing, I was writing a book about healing in business, and four women told me the same thing: you have to work on your own healing if you're going to write about healing. <laughs> yeah. I originally initially resisted. I said, I don't have time for that. I've got a book deadline. But then finally, I, I I delayed that book by five months, and I had all these experiences. I went to the Himalayas where I had my 60th birthday and the Buddhist you know, part of between India and China. I went on a silent retreat for four days and I got 40 to 45 pages of notes and download about life and so forth. I um, worked with a coach for the first time and she's the one who told me about honoring my mother with my work. And then I went to the Amazon rainforest uh, with a group called the Pachamama Alliance. And, and part of that was a shamanic healing with, with uh, the shamans in uh, in the rainforest using ayahuasca and other things. Mm-hmm. And I had this beautiful experience with ayahuasca. I'm sure you're familiar with that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I had gone there to learn about healing. And I had many visions that night, but one of them was that there are four things that we need in order to heal. It came as a list, it came as an acronym. 
L-I-S-T, right? <laughs> love, it says love, innocence, simplicity, and truth. Mm. We need to do everything we do must come from love. Even the hardest and harshest thing you need to do, whether fire somebody or let somebody die or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Do it with love, not anger, not fear, not greed, right? Innocence, we're all born innocent, <clears throat> but then we get corrupted by the ways of the world. Yeah. And we don't have a choice. We're born innocent and then we get corrupted, but we do have a choice when we are adults. Yeah. We can choose to live in that corrupted state or we can return to innocence. And what do I mean by that? Very simply not knowingly causing pain or suffering for an unavoidable pain or suffering. Mm-hmm. Not being the cause of it. My mother was an embodiment of that, right? So reclaiming our innocence, because that's our true self. Simplicity, we make things too complicated. Yeah, amen. Essential, essential things are simple. And the truth, you know, truth is more fundamental than peace, because without truth, there can be no peace. What is our commitment to the truth? In politics, in business, you know, we, we don't have, you know, we, don't, we lie to ourselves, we lie to each other, you know. Yeah. So truth. And so that was a message that came to me, and so I've written about that. And then one day, again, my partner tells me, do you realize that your son is the list? Mm. Walking embodiment of love. Mm. He's incredibly loving, very affectionate. Every time I see him, he puts his cheek out and you know, he just always wants to hug and cuddle. And he's very innocent, like a little child, even though he's 34 years old. Mm-hmm. He's got and the way of being of like a five-year-old. Uh, he keeps life very simple. Mm-hmm. If he has the basics, he's the happiest and most optimistic person in the house. Mm-hmm. You know, he has his video games and his music and other things. And he's incapable of telling a lie. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so here's, I said, these ideas that you got, but here's your son who's a model of that. Yeah. And he's here to teach us, you know. How to live. So again, it's changed my relationship. And you know, he has really blossomed as a result of that. Mm. He hasn't had any episodes and he's just, you know, happier. And you know, just generally, I just see him changing before my eyes. Wow. He comes here and we have dance parties and we take him on trips now with us when we go. And you know, yeah. it's just a whole different equation. So I'm just deeply grateful. Wow. I was able to heal that father wound. You know, in, in my father's case, I was able to get to that place of healing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in my son's case, you know, he wouldn't have the ability or the resources to do that. Fortunately, I was able to. And I think breaking that cycle of, of that victimhood, that father wound, yeah. and of course, it's affected my relationship to my daughters as well. Yeah. Right. Same time. So, uh, so that's been the gift of this uh, this journey. And, uh, you know, the last thing I'll say with my father, you know, when he was on his deathbed in a way, you know, he had had a serious fall and fractured his hip and his wrist. And, you know, it was looking pretty dire. And so I was in India for a wedding and I, I felt maybe this is the last time I see him, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I sat next to him and I <clears throat> held his hand and I said, Papa, I want to thank you giving us, working so hard and giving us way into, it was a very interesting life and we lived all over the world and we did all yeah. these things to do, you know. I didn't want him to die with any heaviness or guilt. Yeah. 
for what had happened between us because it was a big thing. So I wanted to absolve him or relieve him of. Yeah. So I just I just want to thank you and I tell you that I love you and so he just looks at me and he says Raj you are your own boss. Mm. And nothing more. He just had like a half smile. You know? And he said, "Well, that sounds like a good thing, right?" <laughs> I don't think uh, I don't think anybody should have a boss. Yeah. The word boss, I learned, is, is from a Dutch word "bas," which comes from slavery. Master, it means master. Yeah. And so, yeah, you shouldn't have a so. So he could have meant that, yeah, you are your own person, and you 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 live life in your own according to your own principles. Or he could have meant you never listened to me, and you just did your own damn thing, right? <laughs> that could have been the other. But he didn't explain, but I think I choose to believe that it was a kind of grudging acknowledgement that, yeah, he didn't do that. Yeah. He, he let other people be his boss. Yeah. You know? The irony is that he's like this rough and tough guy, and I'm not. And yet when it came down to the essential things, I was able to kind of stand up, not only to him, but also to my profession. I didn't buy into the narrative of business as usual and marketing as usual. Everybody else is out there in that rat race. I chose to step outside it and try to find something better, you know. And so <clears throat> I think that was, again, like the list. Yep. It's a message not only for me. I think it's a message for all of us. We are each where we should be. We are our own boss. Even if you work in a company, you still are you know, in charge of your own destiny, your own you know, captain of your own ship. So, so those are some of the things from a father wound perspective. The other thing yeah. that I didn't tell you is the other deep trauma. So this book is also a lot about trauma and unhealed trauma, which is 99% of trauma. That I realized that I had personal trauma, which was what happened between me and my father. Mm -hmm. Because that's things I personally experienced, traumatic. But then there's family trauma, things that happened in my family system even before I was born. Yeah, which I didn't experience directly, but I lived in the shadow of that, mm. and I was part of that energetic system. So, uh, about seventy-five years ago, in my family, my father's family, he was one of thirteen children. Six of them died when they were, you know, early, right? When they were wow. infants, or, wow. which was pretty yeah. common in those days in villages in India, right? Six died, six lived. Yeah, there was a thirteenth one never heard about. Yeah. My cousin told me on the same walk when he told me about that time my father pulled the gun. I said, what is this curse? My father used to say that people say there's a curse on our family. Okay. That two souls died who never got, you know, never attained peace. And that's why our family has been cursed with all this suffering and incredible, you know, people dying and suicides and murders and children dying and cancer. You know, all kinds of terrible things, way more than, than normal happened yep. in our family, my yep. father's family. And he said, yeah, I know what that is. He said, yeah, we had another aunt. We had one more aunt. And <clears throat> she was about 16, 15. And her older brother, my father's older brother, was getting married. And it turned out that she had been raped by the priest in the village. Mm. And the priest was like the spiritual advisor to our family. They lived next to us in a temple. And you know, they came and did all the weddings. And they did all of the religious occasions. So we're like a trusted father figure and this guy got her pregnant. Uh, She's unmarried, right? And around the time of my uncle's wedding, she started showing. 
it became evident that, oh my God, and all the people start gossiping. Tongues are wagging, right? And my grandfather finds out, because normally he never even sees his daughter. She's in the inner side, the, you, know, you know, inside yeah. the house with all the women, right? That's how it was in those days when you saw your sons. He calls in his oldest son, uncle, and says, uh, this is your responsibility to deal with this. You know, this is going to destroy the honor of our family, destroy the reputation of our family. So you need to take care of this. And the message was very clear that she needed to be erased. Holy shit. The details are fuzzy, but multiple stories about how that happened. But suffice it to say that she and her, she about eight months pregnant, she and her baby were killed. And the baby was actually born and was alive and crying. And, you know, so all that happened. And the next day, it's like she never existed. And then that uncle, who was a very gentle and sweet soul, I'm told, slowly started showing signs of madness. Of course. And then over the period of the next few years, he became completely mad and he had to be locked up in a room in the corner of the house for the rest of his life. I mean, that was my childhood. I remember Kumar Saab, we called him, locked up there, raving and ranting day and night, naked, you know, tied with a chain to a post, oh, screaming geez, at him. You could hear him from a mile away, you know. And here was a living symbol, reminder to everybody in that family of what had happened. And I mean, to me, this is, you know, this is the destruction of the feminine. Yeah. Right? The, I mean, yeah. Over, you know, the hyper-masculine. By the way, nothing happened to that priest. Mm. No consequences for that priest. In fact, he continued to be the spiritual. Yeah. Died for the, for the family. And she was erased and killed. And so that trauma, which my father witnessed, I had, he must have been, I don't know, 16, maybe 17, 18 at that time, sworn to secrecy, could never oh talk about God, it. Right? Could not talk about it. And so now imagine if you're living with that, you know, the only way he found any kind of peace is with alcohol. So what do mm -hmm. we do with most trauma? We conceal it, we, numb, we hide it, right? And then we yeah. numb it with as an alcohol, right? We have yeah. a few hours yeah. of feeling free from it. Yeah. It's the only time I saw my father smile really was after a few drinks. And then he had to take sleeping pills to go to sleep at night. This was the story of the rest of his life. And so we numb it and then we relive it, right? And so what I've come to realize and doing a lot of research on this and meeting with people like Gabor Mate and Vessel van der Kroll, that you have to reveal it Know what yep. happened to you has to be talked about, and then you have to feel it yep. and grieve it, and ultimately, in order to heal it. And there are other modalities like you know, psychedelics and many other EMDR and other mm -hmm. kinds of things that are available today for healing trauma. But most people never even acknowledge it, forget about healing it. And then, when you don't acknowledge your trauma, then it, it drives your life and you end up inflicting trauma on others. Yep. It's unhealed trauma that is behind all of the violence and cruelty. Uh, in our world, right? So, so I've come to realize that it's my role to heal that in myself and then bring that to the surface for my family. Because my, when I learned about this, I said, I'm going to write about this in my book. And the many people in my family in India say, you can't write about that. That's going to destroy our family's yeah. reputation. I said, that's why she was killed. 
Yeah. Because of the same idea about reputation. Yeah. I will not I will not be a part of this conspiracy of silence any longer. Yeah. This needs to be told. And then we had a healing ceremony in India when I went last year. I said we all need to come together as an entire state. Have a truth and reconciliation process of our own. This is what happened. Many of you don't know about this. I didn't know about it until recently. Yep. It happened in our family. We weren't guilty of doing it, but yes, we are part of that system. We have benefited from that family being what it is. Right? We need to beg forgiveness. We need to honor her memory, learn her name, right? And commit to living in a different way. You know, what is our duty as these warriors, so-called warriors, and you know, yeah. given all this power and privilege unearned? We're supposed to be the protectors and defenders of the people. That's what the warrior's creed is, yeah. right? We're supposed to sacrifice ourselves so that people can be safe. That's you know where my ancestors come from, right? And what we have become instead is the abusers of the people. Because yeah. my grandfather abused the workers and the women so badly, sexually abused them, physically abused them. I mean, all kinds of terrible things, paying them starvation wages. So I said, we need to recommit to our dharma, you know, and, yep. and, you know and, and be in a way peaceful warriors, right? We are warriors on behalf of what is right, what is good. Yeah. Fight, for, fight for what is right. And so ultimately to me, my journey becomes about peaceful warrior and a wounded healer. You, know? you cannot heal as effectively. If, if you heal from the same wound yourself, then you become a much more healing. You know, it's like the Japanese have this thing called kintsugi. Mm-hmm. When pottery breaks, they put it back together using cold dust and glue. Yep. It becomes a work of art. Yep. Right? And it is stronger now than if it never was broken in the first place because it breaks where there are fault lines. Now you've strengthened those fault lines. So they call it the art of precious scars. And I think all of us have that potential. When we heal our wounds, when we work on that healing, we can then become sources of healing for yeah. others much more, you know, impactful. Raj, I, I, I can say this without any doubt that, uh, this multi-generational story that you just shared. Um, I think this podcast, I said the fewest words of any I've ever done and appropriately. So this multi-generational story, um, I, I think that it, it, it may be an incredible, one of the best representatives that I could imagine, of this potential shift in cultural healing and collective healing that that's happening as we began the conversation with about i i have for for a very long time seen the root cause of so many of our large scale issues as exactly this patriarchal repression of the feminine abuse of the, of that and that imba- that massive imbalance in our world uh and just for fun uh, you know i used to make tv uh and I, you know, there you should think about, you could think about optioning your book or this story, because I think a, a deeply, if you ever do, and you want a director for a, a, a film that I actually, this is a dream of mine to, to make art, to make uh, large scale media, film, TVs, uh, 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 that that embodies and, and embraces this shift, this cultural shift. And there's some out there, but I think there needs to be way more. Anyway, an epic three-part movie series 
uh, about your family's journey and the the potential healing of the masculine, starting with your grandfather all the way to your son. It's called the list. It has to be called the list. I think that's the name of the epic, the epic story. But uh, man, I'm I am so overwhelmingly grateful to hear this story. Thank you, thank you for. I mean, obviously, not only just sharing it, but living it, and uh, hugely impactful. I feel hugely impactful just hearing you share. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you for drawing it out of me. You know, there's a certain energetic yeah. exchange that happens. You know, and so I do feel, I do feel your presence and your energy uh, very aligned with all of this. So, thank you for the work that you're doing. I think the masculine. You know, there's, we, we say men have had a favored position in society and so forth, and all that might be true, but as you know, I'm sure that, you know, men are facing severe challenges in the world. Yeah. And yeah. You know, the wounds are equally deep, almost on both sides, even the people who have been the oppressors and the people who have been oppressed are both, yeah. both are carrying wounds of that. Right. And I don't, so we need to heal that and we need to renegotiate what does it mean yeah. to be a man. And what I've come to, as I said, is a peaceful warrior. I rejected that identity of me coming from the warrior class, but I said all of us should be peaceful yeah. warriors on behalf of that. I was for too long a harmony seeking mm-hmm. soul. I wanted peace at all costs. Mm-hmm. Well, that's appeasement. That's not real peace. Right. I was the chief harmony officer. I need to become the chief healing officer, which is very different because yeah. you need to, uh, James Baldwin said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. So this is about facing to those harsh truths and, and then healing from that place. And so I think that is the journey we all have to be on. Mm. Well, thank you for leading the way. Is there anything you would like to um, share with our listeners about, uh, I don't know, but where to find your books or your upcoming projects, anything you're excited about that we can plug for you? Sure. Well, my website is rajasodia.com. And then uh, you can find all my books on Amazon. This is, I think, my 15th book. Um, But it's the the only time I've ever written about myself. I never gave myself permission to write about myself. I'm supposed to be an objective academic. And my story, I said, why is my story worth telling? But I realized that perhaps it is. And all of us have you know, stories that are worth telling. I think. So, uh, so it's, been, it's been somewhat liberating and healing. Mm-hmm. We'll go through this. And the gratifying thing, and the book actually has reflection questions at the end of every chapter. Yeah. People think about their own life in the context of what I've just shared in that chapter. You know, and start that, uh, start that healing, healing journey as well. Well, I tell you what, the, the strongest impulse in me is that I'm going to let uh, this episode, you know, populate and come out as a file and I'm going to send it to my father immediately. And that's that's sort of my intuitive and sort of first reaction to hearing your story. So yeah, may this, may this simply offer, uh, you know, perspective and guidance for whoever hears it. And it has... Uh, yeah, I'm I'm grateful you are sharing your own story. I mean, um yeah, like I don't need to muddy it up with any more words, but it's of mythic proportion and it's incredibly important. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Be well, Raj. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening. Again, this is a serious plea. Whoever wants to make this into a movie with me (laughs) or not with me, I don't need to be involved, but this thing needs to be put out there. This is an incredible, 
incredible story. I'm so honored for hearing it, for knowing Raj, and I hope you were impacted. If you were, give us a review, share this podcast, help us uh, expand this circle of goodness that we got going on. All right, everybody, take care.